You know, one of the things I like about Wednesday night is you can, I can hear you singing. That was really awesome. Great to hear your voices tonight. Tonight we're going to look at the book of Hosea. So turn in your Bibles to Hosea. Um, I believe that's page 1028 if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for a beautiful time of worship. What a wonderful thing to hear voices raised in one accord, giving you praise and glory and honor, everything that you're due. Lord, we're reminded tonight of your great majesty, your glory, your holiness. And yet, like the psalmist, we're amazed when we say, what is man that you would think of him? But you do. You love us. You care about us. You know us. You're so good to us, and your blessings are so wonderful. How ridiculous for us to want to leave your shelter. Lord, I pray that we would stay safe within the confounds of your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your commandments, Lord, that keep us safe. Bless this time, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have moved into the last section of our Old Testaments and a part of Scripture that's known as the Minor Prophets. And this is a territory that not a lot of Christians go to, but it's actually fascinating material if you take some time uh, to study. There are 12 Minor Prophets, and three of those prophets had messages to Gentile nations, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. Two of those prophets had messages that they brought to the northern kingdom of Israel. Four of those prophets were sent with messages to the southern kingdom of Judah. And then there are three prophets that came with messages to Judah after they come back from captivity and after they have built their city and their walls. And we lost our video. Can we get it back? So last time together, we looked at these three, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. Tonight, we're going to start looking at these two guys that were sent to the kingdom of Israel. Now, I want to put up this chart. Here's Hosea. He ministered for about 30 to 40 years. And I want you to notice that when he ministered, you still had a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Do you see that? He ministered during those times. Um, You also notice that he is the last prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel before they are judged. Before they are taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So Hosea ministers at a time where Israel is extremely wicked and judgment is imminent. Hosea was from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's a prophet to that northern kingdom. Although in his book, there are times when he does give messages to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the thing about Hosea is he was asked by the Lord to experience extreme personal suffering and pain in his role as a prophet. Look at verse 1, Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord 
that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. See, he's ministering during the kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. There's the northern kingdom. Now look what the Lord asked him to do. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God commands his man, his prophet, Hosea, to find a wife of immorality, to find a wife of harlotry, to find a wife, literally the word means prostitution. Go find a woman that's going to be unfaithful to you and marry her. Go find a woman that's going to cheat on you. Marry her and have children. Now, are you good with that? That's a very difficult uh, thing for some people to take. And as you might imagine, this passage has spawned many debates ethically. Would a holy God command his prophet to go marry a harlot? And why would Hosea do that? Okay, there are three explanations. First, there are some that say that this is all allegory. This is parable. This is all figurative language. Do you buy that? I don't. There is a literal man named Hosea. He meets a literal woman named Gomer. And they do get married and they do have children together. The second explanation would be that God did in fact command Hosea to go find a prostitute. A harlot to marry And so Hosea, in obedience to that command, goes to the red light district, goes to all the go-go clubs, goes to all these very shady districts and finds a go-go girl and marries her. I don't buy that. I don't think that's how it went down. My personal opinion, and there are others that agree, this third explanation, is that Gomer was not an immoral woman when Hosea met her. Hosea met this woman. She was chaste. She was innocent. He fell in love with her. He married her. He was a wonderful husband to her and a wonderful father. After they get married, she becomes immoral. She cheats on him. She becomes a serial adulteress. So in this view, Hosea didn't knowingly marry a harlot. He married a woman who afterwards proved to be a harlot. Now some of you are saying, but wait a minute. The Lord gave this command, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Well, I think it's very possible that Hosea wrote this book in retrospect, in looking back. And in looking back, he could say, God allowed me to marry a woman named Gomer who would prove to be an immoral woman, who would prove to be somebody who would be unfaithful to me, And who would become a wife that would utterly break my heart. And I think that's the best explanation. Whatever the case, 
Hosea is a man who knew the pain of being cheated on by a wife, an unfaithful spouse. That raw, humiliating pain. It is a very intense pain. And I have to tell you tonight that I've seen that pain way too many times than I want to see it. And I've seen it among people here in our church even. I have got to tell you that there have been many times where I have looked in the eyes of a husband who has just found out that his wife cheated on him. I have looked in the eyes of a wife who has just found out that her husband has cheated on her. I have looked in the eyes of a husband who has just admitted adultery. I have looked in the eyes of a wife who has just admitted adultery. And it is pure, sheer pain. Adultery destroys. Adultery destroys trust. Adultery destroys marriages. Adultery destroys entire families. The world loves to paint adultery as something that's exciting. They even have that word for it. What do they call it? Having an affair. An affair. Like it's this this beautiful event and this romantic thing. It's not romantic. It's not an affair. It's destructive. It destroys people's lives. It's a fire. Proverbs chapter 6 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And vice versa. It absolutely destroys. And I would say, brother, if you're here tonight and you're in any type of position where you would be tempted to be unfaithful to your spouse in any way, run. My sister, if you are in a place where you are tempted in any way to cheat on your husband, run. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your life. There is hope with the Lord that there can be recovery, but it is very, very difficult. Now, I want you to know that Hosea experienced that raw pain. He experienced unfaithfulness from his wife. So it says in verse 3, That they did marry, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Gomer... And Hosea has just been married. She conceives a son born to him. They call his name Jezreel. The name Jezreel has two meanings, one positive and one negative. The positive meaning is God sows. Like God sows seed and it becomes fruitful. The negative meaning is that God scatters. And it's a term of judgment, God scattering his people. And that's the meaning here. Jezreel is a place of judgment. It was a place where one of the previous kings of Israel named Jehu committed great atrocities. And there would be vengeance in that area. Great violence poured out. Jezreel is on a valley that's known as the Valley of Jezreel. That valley is also right outside the city called Megiddo. It's also referred to in the scripture as the Valley of Megiddo. 
Does that ring a bell? Also referred to in the book of Revelation as Armageddon. Jezreel is a place of judgment. The northern kingdom of Israel will be judged in the valley of Jezreel when the Assyrians come along and grab them, destroy them, and they're scattered. So call your son Jezreel. Look at verse 6. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Now I want you to notice this. In verse 3 it says, She conceived and bore him a son. Did you see that? What does it say in verse 6? She conceived and bore a daughter. It is believed that she has now been cheating on him. She's had other lovers. And she's been impregnated by another man. And this is the daughter that belongs to someone else. Then God said to him, verse 6, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. So she conceives, I believe, by another man. She has a daughter, and God tells Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhamah, Lo in Hebrew means no or not. It's negative. Ruhumah in Hebrew means mercy or pity. Lo Ruhamah, no pity, no mercy. I don't recommend naming your daughter that if you have a daughter. No mercy, no pity. And in this passage, God says, I will have no mercy on Israel. No pity. I'll still have mercy on Judah, but not on Israel. Look at verse 8. Now when she had weaned lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Again, it's like with the daughter. Again, thought to be another lover, another man, another son born to her. Verse 9, God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. What does Lo mean? No, not Ami in Hebrew means people. Not my people. Or literally, not mine. Now can you imagine as a father naming a son, not mine. Not my kid. And that's what we have here. So, Multiple acts of unfaithfulness that Hosea experiences. And by the way, through it all, through it all, the implication is that Hosea continues to be a faithful, loving, kind, tender husband and father. Well, it gets even worse. After all of this, Gomer eventually completely leaves Hosea, moves out, and literally enters the world of prostitution. She goes out of the house. She leaves Hosea there to take care of her children. And she goes and she begins to sell herself to the men in the marketplace. Look what God tells Hosea to do in chapter 3. Skip to chapter 3. 
Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Watch this. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one-half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Those three verses are called by many some of the greatest verses of redemption that you find in all of the Bible. Please see this. Here is a man who has been completely destroyed emotionally by this woman. She's left. She's a prostitute. She's out in the marketplace. Some years pass. And God says to him, go find Gomer. By this time, the tolls of sin are being felt by her. She's used up. She's dirty. She's probably ugly now. She may be diseased. It seems that she was very easy to find. She's not so much a hot commodity anymore. He very easily finds her. He buys her. The full price of a female servant. He brings her home. He washes her. He cleanses her. Takes her back into his house. Takes her out of the world of prostitution. Leaves her be does not have any sexual relations with her for quite some time. And the implication is eventually they do become man and wife again. What a picture. He rescued her. found her in a a sex slave market. Bought her. Paid the price. Carried her home. That's redemption. It's one of the greatest acts of redemption that you find in all of the Bible. Okay, now you may have noticed that what Hosea experienced personally was designed to be a picture. A picture of what? Of what God himself was experiencing. Hosea in this story represents whom? God. Gomer in this picture, represents whom? In this case, when originally written, Israel. I want to go back to this picture. The Bible says God chose Israel, loved Israel, cared for Israel, out of grace and mercy, found this little group that would become Israel. God redeemed that group out of Egypt, redeemed them out of slavery. God brought them into the promised land, you remember. 
God entered into a covenant with them at Sinai, which is much like a marriage covenant. God said, I will be married to you. Gave this nation everything. Blessed them abundantly. What did Israel do? They cheated on God. For years and years and years, they had affairs on God. They embraced idols. They embraced the Baals, the Ashtoreths. They never would stay true to God. They'd always backslide. Eventually, Israel gets in the land and they divide and they become that northern kingdom of Israel and that southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom becomes the most idolatrous. They come up with their own way of worshiping God. They come up with their own priesthood. They come up with their own altars and they put images of of bulls on these altars and they worship these bulls. They come up with their own feast, their own rival worship system. Gross forms of idolatry. Most of the book of Hosea, you notice there's 14 chapters. Starting in about 4 all the way through chapter 14, it's like you enter this, this courtroom. And God brings this whole list of sins against the northern kingdom of Israel. He tells them, you forgot me. He tells them, you've rejected my law. He tells them that you've chosen idols over me. He tells them that instead of turning to him for help, they turn to other people for help. They make allies with pagan nations. He tells them that their spiritual leadership is corrupt. And the northern kingdom of Israel was absolutely corrupt. They had their own line of kings, not one good king, not one. All of their spiritual leaders, corrupt. And so, they would be judged. Look what we read in verse 2 of chapter 2. Turn there with me. God now speaking to the nation of Israel. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. She's not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlot trees from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in. Verse 9, therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. And I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry, And went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. So here's a nation that did to God exactly what Gomer did to Hosea. And that nation went to the slave market. In 722 B.C., 
Assyria did come and take them captive. And there's something very interesting about the northern kingdom of Israel. They were scattered, never to come back. In fact, many people refer to the northern kingdom evil of, of Israel as the lost tribes of Israel. Have you heard that? That kingdom never came back. They were scattered. In 722 B.C., God said to them, not my people. In that same year, God said to them, no pity. You're scattered. And I do believe that that is the state that they are still in to this day. Particularly, specifically, the northern kingdom of Israel. However, has God forgotten about Israel? No, he hasn't. There's also this scene for them. It's interesting in chapter 1, it kind of oscillates between judgment and restoration. And you see the same thing in chapter 2. Look at verse 10 very carefully with me of chapter 1. Here's the restoration, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel both shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of what? Jezreel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. What's the promise? There is coming a day when God restores Israel and reverses all the names of those kids. 722 B.C., they're scattered. God says here, one day they're going to be gathered. They'll be sowed. They'll plant back in their land. Back then they had no mercy. One day they will have mercy. At that time, they became not my people. There's coming a time where God says to them, not only will they be my people, they'll be sons of the living God. Look what else it says. Verse 11. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered what? Together. No more distinction between northern kingdom and southern kingdom. There's coming a time together where they'll be brought together as one nation. What else it says in that verse? And appoint for themselves one what? One king. One head. One ruler. Israel will be restored as one unified nation under one ruler. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. What is Jezreel again? The valley of Jezreel, the valley of Megiddo. Do you see in here a hint of how this all happens with Armageddon? Okay. Go over to chapter 2 again. Look at verse 14. This is the restoration part. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. 
And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Do you see the complete reversal? Do you see this promise that God makes to Israel? Back, sewn together, under the mercy of God, under the grace of God. They become his people. Okay. Has that happened? No. And again, here's another example in Scripture as we studied before that points towards this last day scenario. When we studied the 70 weeks of Daniel, here in the Old Testament, God is dealing with Israel. Right here we have the church age. When the church age wraps up, what do we have? Final seven years of human history. And who is God dealing with primarily in those seven years? Once again, the nation of Israel. After the seven-year period, how does that close out? The battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes again. There's a battle in the valley of Jezreel. Christ comes. He defeats all of the enemies. The Bible teaches that he becomes the king in Jerusalem over a unified Israel. Once again, and rules over the earth for a thousand years in that capacity. Again, incredible how all of scripture points to that. Now, I personally believe that we're close to that. And why do I say that? Because on May 14th, 1948, what happened? The nation of Israel was reborn. After 2,500 years, a literal, unified nation of Israel back in the promised land. That is the indication to me that we are living in the last days. And that at any moment, Christ can come, the rapture of the church takes place, the church age is done, and in comes the seven-year tribulation period where we deal with Israel, then Armageddon. Again, incredible grace and love and mercy for a nation that had been so unfaithful to God. Now, I want to take you through that series of pictures again. I do believe that the book of Hosea shows how much God wants relationship. God wants relationship with us. 
a relationship of intimacy. The Bible teaches God created us and he loves us and he wants this beautiful relationship with us. All of the most intimate relationships within the human experience are related to the relationship that God wants with us. The marriage relationship. Can there be anything more intimate? The Bible says that the church is the bride. And the groom is whom? Jesus. He wants that with us. The Bible says that God wants to be our father. Our heavenly father. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit's in us. And by the the spirit, not only do we cry out father, but we cry Abba, father. Abba is the most intimate name for, for father. It's daddy. It's what God wants with us. We find out in the New Testament that he wants to be like our brother. Romans 8, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Lord wants to be your brother, your big brother. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. The heart of God toward man. I want to be your best friend. I want to be your big brother. I want to be your heavenly father. I want a relationship with you. As intimate as that between husband and wife. That's God's heart. Problem is we've blown it. Bible says we've sinned. We've abandoned God. We've rebelled against God. We've chosen not to go his path. And it leads to pain and suffering and all kinds of gross things. That's why God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us. Out of great sacrifice. To give us salvation. To die on a cross for the sins of the world. Interesting detail. Hosea comes from the same Hebrew word where we get Joshua and where we get Yeshua. The name Jesus comes from those variants of that Hebrew word. And you know what Hosea and Yeshua and Joshua mean? God is salvation. God is salvation. Jesus, the very name means God is salvation. Christ has left heaven. Christ came to rescue us. Christ can make us one of his own. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. If you're here tonight and you've never received Christ, You have that opportunity. Now, I want to go through it one more time. You're a Christian here tonight. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. You are the recipient of his great love and grace. He's your husband. He's your best friend. He's your big brother. He's your heavenly father. He's your king. He's your prophet. He's your savior. Would you walk away from him?
think this imagery teaches us something about the heart of God. When we choose something other than him, it's like we're having an affair on him. And you know what? It hurts him. God uses this horrific experience in the life of Hosea. And I believe to indicate to us there's great pain in his heart. When we leave him, when we ignore him, when we abandon him. And I, if there's anything that we should be as born-again Christians, and that is we should be those who are fiercely loyal, loyal to our Lord. Amen? let anything take the place of Christ in your life. Don't cheat on God. Don't break the heart of the one who died on a cross for you. Make it your aim in life to, to live to please him. If you have backslidden, run to him. He'll receive you back. That's what's so amazing about the Lord Jesus Christ. The love and the grace that he continues. Remember the story of the prodigal son. When he comes back, what does God do? What does the father do? Get out of here, kid. Does he do that? He says, come, puts a robe on him, puts a ring. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. My son who was lost has been found. Don't get outside his safety. My brother, my sister in Christ, stay true to him. If you've walked away, here's a famous verse out of the book of Hosea. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. If you walk away from him, he may strike you. He may tear. But that's just to get you back. And if you come back to him, he'll heal up those wounds. Come back to him before he has to do any discipline. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Father, I thank you for the picture that you give us out of this book. Lord, the great desire in your heart that we would be close to you, that we would have a relationship with you. Lord, in the fact that you are so good to us. You're a good father. You're the best friend. Lord, how easy for us, even as your people, to get deceived and to walk away and to follow after things in the world. Lord, protect us from that. I pray, Lord, for anyone here tonight who has walked away from you, that tonight they would return to you and that there would be restoration and that there would be a true change. Maybe that's you tonight. If that's you, I'd like you to pray. Just in the quietness of your heart, you return to him. 
the Lord will receive you back. But return to him. Be loyal to him. Serve him. Don't let anything else take, take his place. Just express this in your heart. Say, Lord, I want to come back to you tonight. Fully surrendered to you tonight. Be first place in my life. Put me back on that path that pleases you. Restore me. Lord, we close tonight by thanking you how how great your love is and grace and mercy and what you have done to save us and change our lives, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be determined to leave this place desiring to please you more every day. Use our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's